Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the Nope Too Creepy podcast. This episode will feature three stories with the common theme of mysterious places and cryptic cover-ups, and an underlying fear of the unknown. This first story takes us to a pastime that has stolen the hearts of just about everyone in the past few years, escape rooms. It's truly all fun and games, until the goal of escaping becomes a bit too literal. That's exactly what happens in, I'm a manager at an escape room, and it finally happened. I'm a manager at an escape room, and it finally happened. A group beat my new puzzle room. Some background on this before I delve into the story might be needed. My occupational history, while varied, focused primarily on art endeavors and event planning. Probably the reason the struggling local escape room business favored my resume over the other candidates. No, I won't give you the name of the business. But rest assured, you've heard of it. Or you will, soon. See, I got the job about two months ago, after beating all three of their existing rooms in under 30 minutes apiece. Alone. For those uninitiated few, most escape rooms give you a one-hour limit and provide you with hints throughout to keep your progress moving, and many invite groups as large as 10 to participate in the experience. Hey, being a trivia whiz actually paid off for once in my life, so sue me. Along with my normal duties as manager, I was given the task of designing a fourth room for the company to try and boost sales, and I promised to give the owner the ultimate in room experiences. I suppose I lived up to that promise, if nothing else. With the impending Halloween season in mind, I began to draw up plans for puzzles, riddles, set designs, and all the associated embellishments they would require, along with a new twist. The introduction of employee actors into the room as an integrated part of the group. These individuals could be incorporated in two ways, either as a, quote, paying customer, or as an integral plot element to the room's story depending on the makeup of the actual paying group. We cleared out the basement of the building for this new addition, and I drafted up plans for three distinct variations, to be reviewed and ultimately selected by the owner. The Haunted Tomb, Lair of Nosferatu, and Dante's Inferno. She decided to move forward with the Inferno theme, hoping the edgier nature would draw more people during the normally slow fall season. If you aren't familiar, most escape rooms are quite family-friendly, and we were hoping that working against this model would help draw in a new crowd. It worked. After a month of off-hours renovations and new training programs implemented for the existing employees, as well as hiring two trained actors and a makeup artist, the new room was ready for business. 
Now, I'm generally not one to toot my own horn, but the design was slicker than the water off a duck's ass. Crimson columns, black furniture with all the necessary modifications for trap doors and secret compartments, murals on the walls of a nightmarish landscape, even a completely redesigned torture rack that would be manned by one of our new actors. The room looked like it had walked right out of Eli Roth's wet dreams when we were done with it. The puzzles were nearly unbeatable as well. It opened at the beginning of August and was immediately booked up solid for the season, as far out as the middle of November. It was covered on the news. We invited all the biggest brains everyone knew to beat the room. The best part? No one could. Inferno went 123 to 0, remarkably with no complaints about the difficulty. People saw it as a challenge, a true experience. The ambiance, the actors, the puzzles, everyone who stepped foot in that room raved about it even though it bested every single one. Until today. As of 1.37pm Eastern Standard Time on August 26, 2019, Inferno was the undeniable champion of escape rooms. And as of 1.38, the first group escaped. It was an unassuming family of four who finally escaped. A father and mother in their mid-fifties just past their prime enough to be sporting wrinkles, but enough of a curiosity to be excited. An older son who had to be verging on 20, who carried himself with an air of intellectual superiority reserved for a season escape room pro, and a teenage daughter in the blackest hoodie I had ever seen, with the eyeliner and attitude to match. I paired them up with Rachel, our best actor who I knew could really sell her role as a tortured denizen of hell. Rachel took her place in the torture rack before I admitted the group to the room. I watched the group's progress on the monitors from the floor above, knowing that Rachel, once freed, would be providing most of the clues to the participants. Just enough to keep them going, but not enough to solve the major puzzles and riddles. They were greeted with a dark room and Rachel's mock screams of anguish. Unfazed, the goth daughter managed to whip through the first three easy puzzles and get the key to free Rachel, who took up her accustomed place in the corner, rocking back and forth as if traumatized. Though the audio wasn't great on our systems, I knew she would be muttering the answer to the next part under her breath. They were sitting at a below-average time of 22 minutes when the sun managed to open the secret chamber at the back of the room. Even I was impressed. Here is where things started to get... odd. The monitors started cutting in and out, obscuring my view for precious seconds at a time. Rachel was up and wandering around like she was lost, going off script for the first time since she was hired, to the best of my knowledge. Between flickers of static, 
I saw the parents putting their collective knowledge together to gain access to a scorched chest in the newly opened part of the room. Red light poured into the darkened room as its contents were revealed. Rachel's face suddenly appeared directly in front of the main camera, but I couldn't make out what she was saying. The audio must have gone on the fritz as well. Her eyes had a strange glassy sheen to them. The family rooted around the chest, and within another two minutes, they had completed the next part of the challenge. That was when I heard it. Thuds, like the footfalls of a giant creature, coming from the basement, and almost loud enough to feel it in the center of your chest, like the bass drum at the front row of a rock concert. It was not normal, not part of the experience. The family, for their part, didn't seem to notice but Rachel, a veteran of this room, did. Her face was now filled with fear. They were 35 minutes in, and on the brink of beating Inferno. Not only were they close, but the time was almost unbelievable. The entire building shuddered as the last lock was removed from the door. The lights in the room cut out completely. Here was the final test. Very few had made it this far. One ultimate test to open the door to freedom. I called it the sacrifice. Now let me explain, as it will come up soon, I'm sure. In the very first cabinet is a bottle of pig's blood kept fresh by a local butcher shop. This is hinted at by a poem emblazoned on the exit door, and the handle of the door contains a moisture-sensitive compound that expands when a certain amount of liquid is introduced. This allows the internal mechanism of the handle to align and be turned. Quite ingenious, if I do say so myself. The lights in the room flickered back on momentarily. And when they did, I gasped. The daughter had a pocket knife. In between fits of static, I watched her slide it across her open palm. She then grasped the door handle and turned it. White light flooded the room as the cameras cleared at last. There was a huge dark shadow at the back of the room, looming like a thundercloud. The family, along with Rachel, ran out the door. The time was 1.38 p.m. Inferno had been beaten in the strangest way I could have imagined. I took the steps, two at a time, down to the staging area immediately outside the escape room to congratulate the family on their victory and check on the girl's injured hand, of course. Only, there was no one. 
No family. No Rachel. As of writing this, the police are still searching the building and reviewing the security footage from inside and outside Inferno. But they're gone. They escaped. I just don't know to where. Have you ever wondered if there are secrets being kept from you? Kept from all of us? Maybe even right under our nose? The next story takes us to the Windy City. A young Chicagoan stumbles upon something sinister in their beloved town and makes the unsettling revelation that there are tunnels beneath Chicago. Six tunnels sit under the swampy ground that makes up downtown Chicago. Six different systems, connected and unconnected, opened and abandoned, direct water and railway ties as deep as 350 feet. The public underground ends at 40, leaving the remaining 310 to endless winding causeways crisscrossing metal and dirt, and wood put into place as far back as 1867. Even more tunnels wind through the rest of Chicago, outside the downtown loop. Supposedly, they're all connected. Supposedly. I have a friend, Araceli, whose job is to climb down into the maintenance tunnels and along the tracks to make repairs and find leaks. At the time of writing this, she's been missing for a week and four days. She disappeared sometime after starting her shift, while repairing a malfunction of some kind in the red line tunnels. I don't know all of the details. The only thing of hers the authorities have found is a digital recorder that she used to take notes mostly about the strange things she encounters in the tunnels, disguised as a maintenance log. I was the one who suggested she start using it, after a particularly off-putting run-in with a homeless man. I was able to listen to the audio on Araceli's mother's laptop. I don't know if I was supposed to, but her mom let me two other friends and Araceli's boss listen in case we could make any sense of it. I don't know how she obtained it, whether the police gave her a copy or she just stole it, but I'm not about to question it. Araceli uploaded old recordings to her computer every few days, and the little bit left on the recorder was from the day she disappeared. Each paragraph marks the start of a new bit, jumping ahead with every new thought and event. I don't know how to make sense of the whole thing. Maybe one of you will. I'll try to describe the audio from Araceli's recorder. It clicks onto her voice, boisterous and reverberating, in whatever tunnel is around her. What better way to spend New Year's Day than in a nasty rail tunnel, am I right? <sighs> Gotta love my job. 
Marsha has me under Monroe, checking out some electrical she thinks was tampered with. I guess seen by a conductor when he passed by. Like gnarled metal or something. The lights are out over here. The power's been weird. One or two trains halted in front of the area with no known causes. It's probably rats again. There's no way to tell how much time has passed between her entries. You know, sometimes I think I can feel the other tunnels under my boots. The deeper tunnels. It's almost like I can feel the voids of space where dirt and concrete should be. Like I could feel the vibrations. Like a train, but it isn't a train. It's deeper somehow. I saw a man going down into, I don't know what they're called. They're called Jeffrey's tubes in Star Trek. I saw a man way down in the tunnel, take a ladder into a tube next to the rails. There's a moment of quiet and you can hear the drips and echoes. The underground sounds around her before she speaks again. Sometimes I see these ladders leading into these tubes, entrances, along the lines. I don't know what they're about. He wasn't wearing a reflective vest. I didn't think there was anything below us that belongs to the CTA. I don't know where they go. 60 miles of low-ceilinged, narrow freight tunnels sit directly below the red and blue lines long sealed and partially flooded. They connect sub-basements and skyscrapers throughout the city. Picture 60 miles of darkness, a tight and wet labyrinth, never-ending, impossible, and lifeless. I have always wanted to go into the freight tunnels, you know, like break in. I didn't even know they existed until I started working here. Parts of them flooded the year that I was born, when the city drove a bridge piling into the wall of a coal tunnel they didn't even know went right under the river. It flooded the pedway and a bunch of basements in the loop. <laughs> what a shit show. Beneath the freight tunnels are cable car tunnels relics of a century-old form of public transit predating the CTA. Like an ancient train tunnel, dim lights ran along concrete and wood, moving cars of people 80 feet under the ground, under the Chicago River. The cable car tunnels would be cooler. Imagine being in a wooden car in the 1800s, on creaking wood rails, 80 feet of dirt on top of you, and 20 feet of river water above that. Araceli went quiet again, and I imagined the adrenaline that must have flooded her veins, like water in tunnels, nothing but ancient, dim lanterns to light the way. Water drips in the audio, and her bootsteps clank and echo, one after the other after the other. I've heard the story of a phantom train that shows up at some of the stations at night, at like 2 or 3 in the morning. Ancient looking things from other decades, disappearing people into the tunnels. 
the wiring is completely messed up. Now I know what the conductor was talking about. This is going to take more than me to fix. There are wires ripped out of the wall. A box is busted open, like someone took a crowbar or a claw hammer to it. There are long marks in the concrete. There's... There's... I've taken a tour of the tunnels once, courtesy of Araceli. Once you pass the glowing lights, human chatter, and rank piss smell of the CTA stations, the tunnels become a winding mess of concrete and unease. Despite their use and their upkeep, they look and feel abandoned, like they've been sitting beneath the city for millennia. I felt anxiety bubble in me. I felt that unease to the bone. The tunnels are unwelcoming. The earth doesn't like that we've bored into her like an apple. The trains wriggle through her like worms, rotting her. That's what the unease feels like. I don't know how else to describe it. There's another Jeffrey tube. I saw another man go in it. It looked exactly like the last one. Exactly like him. But I'm not in the same place. I'm staring into that tube. It's only a couple feet in diameter and has a maintenance ladder. I checked my map, but it doesn't make sense. Her radio crackles with distant voices talking to each other, but not to her. Drips and echoes. I'm going down it. The recorder clicks on and there isn't anything but the sound of heavy breathing for a few seconds. I've been descending this tunnel for a while. Ten minutes, maybe. Her voice sounds different, distorted by the proximity and the tightness of that tube. The air around me is cool. It's creeping through my jacket the deeper I go. I don't know where a tube this deep can lead. My flashlight doesn't shine on an endpoint. If I don't reach a new level in another 10 minutes, I'm turning back. I can't see the light from where I came from. In the background, you can hear the clang of her boots hitting the metal rungs of the ladder. I think she clipped her recorder to her vest and had the flashlight around her wrist as she climbed. I've seen her do it before. I took a class. I remember caves with faces, archaeological sites in Mexico, entrances into the underworld, teeth and eyes carved into rock. There is a power in the darkness, in the earth, in the water. Her voice sounds different. I can't tell you how. It's been an hour since I climbed down. There's nothing. I tried radioing Marsha, and there's no signal. I'm turning around. I should have turned around a while ago.
She sounds distant. Strange. Time passed so quickly. I didn't... I didn't even realize. I'm getting tired. I don't know how much longer I can do this. She's close to tears at this point. I turned around. I don't understand. I turned around. I turned around hours ago. Where's the entrance? Where's the end? She sounds frantic, but quiet, whispering, wheezing, cautious. There is no end. She's whispering. There is no end. There is no end. There is no There are no more recordings on the device. They found it under the mangled wires and light fixture that she was sent to find. Just sitting there on the damp concrete. Marcia took me and our friends to the side, out of earshot of Articelli's mother, to tell us there are no Jeffrey tubes in that tunnel. Not where she described, or how she described. And the search crew didn't find any either. I know the stories of the disappearing trains. I know the stories of whole communities of people hiding in the tunnels, unfound. But I don't know this. I want my friend back. I want her to be okay. But when I think about the tunnels, something ancient in me tells me that she's not. Most of us have heard about the horrible incident that decimated the city of Chernobyl on April 26, 1986. But what if the dreadful fallout we've been shown is only a small part of its consequences? What if there is more that we are not being told? The final story makes the bold claim. They lied about the Chernobyl disaster. At 1.23 a.m. on the 26th of April, 1986, a routine safety test was being conducted in one of the Soviet Union's many nuclear power plants. A combination of design flaws and human error resulted in uncontrolled reaction conditions. Superheated water was instantly turned to steam causing an explosion and a subsequent open-air graphite fire. The Chernobyl disaster has begun. It took 36 hours for Soviet officials to establish a 10-kilometer exclusion zone, which resulted in the rapid evacuation of almost 50,000 people from the nearest population center, Pripyat. Cleanup teams, given the sickening euphemistic moniker of liquidators, 
worked tirelessly to rid the area of radioactive debris. Nearly a quarter of a million men worked shifts of only 90 seconds, any longer and they would be exposed to levels of radiation that would kill them in the most horrendous ways imaginable. Such levels of gamma radiation would cause cells to rot and decay from the inside out. Organs begin to liquefy internally. Blood vessels rupture and spill open, rendering attempts to administer morphine completely useless. The afflicted would die in agony, their attendants unable to provide even the most minimal of relief. The following month, after a futile attempt at controlling the catastrophe had already cost countless lives, a definitive solution was reached. The Soviets began designs for what they called the Objikit Okritiana, which literally translates to sheltering or covering in Russian but what would forever be referred to as the sarcophagus. The sarcophagus was built to isolate almost 250 tons of devastatingly radioactive materials that would continue to endanger all forms of life for more than a quarter of a million years. At least, that's what the accepted truth of the matter is. The reality is much, much more terrifying. According to declassified documents obtained after the fall of the Soviet Union, the cleanup teams that initially worked on the decontamination process complained of encounters with anomalies during their work. These were initially dismissed as stress reactions after being exposed to abnormal amounts of radiation. But only when increased incidences of such anomalies were reported, and even confirmed by senior military officials, were they taken seriously. What's more, encounters and sightings were beginning to be reported by civilians in the surrounding areas, who hysterically called what they saw the tinye, or shadows. Those that did not sign public statements declaring they had nothing more than an overactive imagination were sent to the gulags on charges of treasonous statements. Yet, while the Soviets imprisoned people for their so-called lies, they also sent in what were called animal control teams. None of Pripyat's pet dogs or cats could have survived a month in the zone, receiving fatal doses of gamma radiation day after day, week after week. So why were these animal control teams sent in? I know that the Chernobyl sarcophagus was constructed to contain something other than just the radiation. A month's worth of boric acid and sand drops did actually begin to see a reduction in the output of gamma rays. So many reports of what the documents only refer to as anomalies cannot simply be ignored. What I don't know 
is exactly what is being imprisoned inside that huge steel and concrete chamber known as the sarcophagus. But I do know, whatever it is, it terrified the Russians into silence. And when the American intelligence agencies found out what it was, they were complicit in the cover-up. As of April this year, the sarcophagus is undergoing testing of its installed systems. It was revealed that the water is leaking through the sarcophagus via holes in the roof. Rain-induced corrosion of supporting beams now threatens the structure's integrity. The sarcophagus is falling apart. I don't know what's trapped in there, but I have a feeling that I'm going to find out. We're all going to find out. Very, very soon. And it'll be the end of all of us. Thank you for joining me in this episode of the Nope Too Creepy podcast. If you're interested in learning more about the authors of these stories, please check out the show notes for all their information. If you enjoyed yourself, please be sure to give us a follow and possibly even a rating, which will help the podcast reach new listeners. If you'd like to hear more creepy tales, keep in mind that a new story is uploaded to the Nope Too Creepy YouTube channel every Tuesday. Until next time, this is Dan David, reminding you all to stay safe out there. I'll be seeing you in the next episode.